This is Africa Digest. It's 12 o'clock Central African time. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. You are listening to Channel Africa, the African perspective broadcasting from Johannesburg. We are on channel 802 on the DSTV Audio Bouquet and on free to air satellite PAS10 and on the internet at www.channelafrica.co.za. You can also follow us on Facebook at Channel Africa, on Twitter at Channel Africa 1, and on WhatsApp at plus 2776 I'm Teddy Sibia. In studio with me is Jolani Tulo, Sikhe Zuma, and Neto Chimane. For top stories on Africa Digest at this hour, Cameroon's government forces and ar- forces armed ethnic Fulani fighters kill at least 21 civilians in Kuba village, including 13 children. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, says Zimbabwe may plunge into a humanitarian crisis due to missed economic targets. And the World Health Organization says it's providing support to Algerian health authorities after the country confirmed its first case of COVID-19. But first, the news with Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thanks, Teddy. Good afternoon. Guinea's President Alpha Conde has reportedly refused to meet a delegation of West African leaders as the country heads towards a referendum that could allow him to run for a third term. A delegation of heads of state from the regional bloc, the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, was scheduled to visit Guinea on Friday. It was to be led by Niger President Mohamedou Isofu and was to include Nigeria's Mohamedou Buhari, Ghana's Nana Okofu Ado and Burkina Faso's Roche Kabore. Guinea has has been plunged into political crisis over President Conde's push for constitutional reforms through a referendum that will be led on March the 1st. The opposition has said it will boycott the vote. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has called for the temporary closure of all public schools from next Monday until the end of March to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. Abe's announcement came as a further 13 people tested positive for COVID-19 in Japan, including two children. The BBC's Jenny Hill has the story. Concern is growing in Japan as the number of cases continues to rise. More than 900 people have been infected and eight have died. Most of the cases were on board the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which is moored in the port of Yokohama. But separately, nearly 200 people have tested positive. Among them, a woman who was treated and discharged from hospital before she tested positive again a few weeks later. Earlier, the Prime Minister, Shinzo Abe, called for the temporary closure of all public schools in what will be interpreted as a sign of just how worried the authorities are. Meanwhile, two more people have died in Italy from the coronavirus, bringing the death toll from the worst outbreak of the disease yet seen in Europe to 14. The chief of the Civil Protection Agency, Angelo Borelli, earlier told reporters that officials were still seeking confirmation that the coronavirus was responsible for the latest two deaths, but it has now been confirmed. Meanwhile, the number of confirmed cases in the north of Italy has jumped to 528, 100 more cases than Wednesday. An international charity says the invasion of locusts in East Africa is likely to cause the region's worst humanitarian crisis in recent times. Mercy Corps says a second invasion is due in the next few months. The BBC's Mary Harper has the story. Mercy Corps said the recent arrival of locusts in South Sudan is especially worrying, as more than half the population already relies on humanitarian aid. The insects are ravaging crops and pastures in parts of East Africa, where tensions over grazing land are already high. Experts say the numbers of the fast-breeding creatures could grow by 500 times before June, when dry weather sets in, which helps curb their spread. The United Nations Food Agency says this is the worst locust invasion in East Africa in 25 years. 
And finally, one person has drowned and two people have been rescued from the sea after an inflatable boat capsized in South Africa between Odegral and Muli Point on the, Cape, on the Cape Town coast in the Western Cape province. A rescue operation for at least nine people got underway this morning after the semi-submerged boat was discovered close to Muli Point. The operation includes an air search. NSIR spokesperson Craig Lambinon says the two men were recovered into an Air Force helicopter and taken to hospital. Sadly, uh, during the ongoing search operation, one person was found deceased in the water. The body of that man has been located and recovered. The body will be taken away uh, into the care of the forensic pathology services. The search operation continues. Uh, We believe now that there may still be at least six people that may still be missing at sea. Um, And that search operation remains to be an extensive search operation with NSRI, police, law enforcement, ambulance services. Headlines at 5.30 for Channel Africa. I'm Cholani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Cameroon's government forces and armed ethnic Fulani fighters have killed at least 21 civilians in Gupa village, including 13 children. This is according to a new report by rights organization Human Rights Watch. The incident is alleged to have occurred in a remote part of the northwest region, one of two English-speaking regions gripped by conflict sparked by demands for independence from majority Franklin, Cameroon. The report says the attack was carried out to punish civilians suspected of harboring separatist fighters. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Ilaria Allegroza, senior researcher on, on Central Africa at Human Rights Watch. In our report, we uh, documented how the security forces um, with uh, a group of armed ethnic Fulani massacred um, at least 21 civilians, including 13 children, in the village of Ngarbu, which is in the northwest region of Cameroon, which has been severely affected by the violence since at least uh, 2016. Our findings show that this was a reprisal attack carried out to punish the local population accused of collaborating with with or um, sheltering the armed separatists. It was a retaliation, um, and uh, the people we spoke to were very, very clear um, that there was no confrontation between the military and the um, separatist fighters during uh, this uh, incident, and it was clearly a reprisal attack. Talk to us about how this report was put together and how many people were interviewed. Yeah, we have interviewed um, over 25 people, including witnesses, to the killings and uh, relatives of the victims. We have also obtained a list of victims' names from uh, different sources, and we have spoken to people, relatives of the victims, residents of the village, who uh, carried out the burials of the body and who independently confirmed the victims' identities. Um, Also, witnesses told us that the army burned the bodies of the victims inside the four houses which were targeted and where people were killed. Uh, And so we were able to geolocate the four homes and uh, reviewed satellite imagery taken before and after the attack. And uh, clearly, the post-attack image shows uh, that the homes um, have damages consistent with burning and consistent with the testimonies of the people we've interviewed. If this is true, this is a serious indictment on the government of Cameroon. Of course, the government has flatly denied that its troops deliberately committed these crimes. I see the United Nations also expressed concern over the killings, urging the government to open an investigation. What would you like to see happen as Human Rights Watch once the investigation is complete? Yeah, I mean, you're right. We are really determined to uh, raise attention about this emblematic case because uh, the killings were really outrageous and because the evidence we gathered was um, really solid and damning. Uh, this uh, massacre in Garbo um, received wide condemnation internationally. Not only the UN Secretary General um, called for an investigation, but also the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights um, and France and the UK and Canada 
and the United States. And we are happy to see um, these um, strong messages to condemn these killings. And we call for in, an independent investigation to be carried out. Uh, we want the findings of this investigation to be made public. And we want those responsible to be held accountable in fair trial. So this is what we are calling for. Do you think more attacks are going to be carried out if nothing is done to make sure that those responsible are brought to book? Absolutely. Um, the almost total lack of prosecutions by the government for the crimes committed by its security forces in the Anglophone regions um, has made possible to protect uh, those responsible, to protect the perpetrators as fueled abuses. So we see that there's a, a strong need for um, uh, the fight against impunity and uh, to hold perpetrators accountable in order for the violence to de-escalate and for the crisis in the Anglophone regions to be addressed. Um, I mean, like the search for a peaceful solution for the crisis in the Anglophone regions is not easy, but it should be um, continued and taken into account fundamental questions related to justice and accountability for human rights violations committed by both government forces and uh, separatist fighters. I can imagine the victims must be traumatized by these attacks. Are they getting any kind of support, be it medical, psychological support? I think that the families of the victims and I think the survivors of the attack have been very distressed and traumatized, not only by what happened, but also by the denial of um, the attack by the government. Uh, Denying these uh, killings only adds a layer of suffering and traumatism for those who survived. The uh, UN um, agencies, just in the aftermath of the attack, uh, tried to conduct um, a needs assessment for those who had been displaced after the attack, but unfortunately were blocked by government forces and um, were prevented to conduct their work. So I think it's very important to um, make sure that those people who have survived the attack and those who have been displaced after the attack um, get the necessary um, humanitarian assistance, um, also because in this uh, particular area, which has been severely affected, affected by the violence, the needs can be huge. And that's Ilaria Allegrosi, a senior researcher on Central Africa at Human Rights Watch, on the line from New York in the United States, talking to Kumbelo Muchenzela. The National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control, the body responsible for instilling discipline in the management and of drug-related issues in Nigeria, has said only cooperation between countries at regional and continental levels can help speed up the efforts to win the war against drug abuse. This assertion has, was made at an international conference on tackling drug abuse in Abuja, Nigeria's capital. Discussions at the conference noted that Africa's future is in danger because of the high presence of its youth between the ages of 20 and 29 getting involved in drug abuse. Collins Atohengbe reports. Nigeria's geographical location puts it in the middle of the crossroads to all parts of Africa, especially towards the Sahel region, where trade between Europe and Arab world had thrived since the creation of the Trans-Sahara route. Despite the economic viability of that route, the criminal intent to which it has been put leaves no one in doubt of the adverse effect the end product will have on the over 200 million people in Africa's biggest economy. Drug trade and substance abuse became one of the potent danger faced not only by Nigeria but all Africans because of interactions with drug dealers who would do anything to find outlets for their product and monetary gains. Speaking at the opening of the Conference of Africa's Quality Medicine Forum in Abuja, the Director General of Nigeria's National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control, Professor Moji Shola Adeyeye, says Africa needs to depend on each other both for strategies and how to win the war against fake drug and abuse. I always say that if a country regulatory agency is strong but surrounded with weak regulatory agencies, that strong regulatory agency is a matter of time things will start happening. So we've got to rely on each other to strengthen each other. Strong institutions and a bond between nations on common cause has been one major way Africa has won many battles. But this is no longer quite reliable because of weak institutions and lack of political will to apply the rules. Buba Marwa, the chairman of the Presidential Committee on Drug Abuse, says abuse in Nigeria is rising and requires urgent control. 
we've heard that one in seven Nigerians use drugs. But if you look at the statistics, for instance, the southwest zone, the prevalence is 22.4%. That's 4.2 million. The next is the south-south, 16.6%. About 2.2 million Nigerians in the south-south. And go to the southeast, which is the third in prevalence, 1.55 million Nigerians, 13.8% prevalence. And then when you go to the north, the next is the northeast, which is 13.6% prevalence, 2.09 million uh, taking drugs. Then the Northwest, with a prevalence of 12%, uh, 3 million drug users. Then the North Central has 10% prevalence, 1.5 million. It's a terrible situation, and there's a need to move fast on it. Otherwise, we're almost a nation of, of drug users. Why the war is geared towards cutting off hard drug trafficking and usage, there's an aspect of abuse which has been very difficult to track down because of implications of healthcare delivery. Common drugs sold across the counter, like cough syrups, codeine, and tramadol, meant for pain relief, have become the attractions primarily for youths. Glenn Pritchard of the United Nations Office on Drug Control says that aspect is a bit difficult to handle in relation to illicit drugs. Cannabis is considered the most widely used illicit drug in Nigeria, but pharmaceutical drugs such as the tramadol and codeine is obviously something that's got a lot of publicity recently and it's something that our office is very concerned in developing a, a solid response. The difficulty with that is it doesn't fall neatly within law enforcement responses. There's proper uses and, pro and there needs to be proper access to drugs like tramadol and codeine in this country for people who are suffering pain. So getting that balance right is quite difficult. It's not as straightforward as um, the approaches in relation to the illicit drugs. Buba Marwa agrees with the observation of the UN officials and gave a breakdown of the percentage usage of each of the identified drugs. Now, there's 14.3 million drug users in the country. Of that population, 10.6 are using cannabis. Cannabis is by far the highest commodity that they are using. And perhaps because it is grown mostly in the South, that accounts for why the prevalence is high in the South. After that are the opioids which is about uh, 4.6 million also doing opioids, and then uh, cough syrups, 2.4 million. In Nasarawa State, North Central Nigeria, where there is a high prevalence of youth involvement in the use of unclassified products like cough syrups, tramadol, and codeine, the people say even banditry in the country is foiled by drug abuse. Our youth are all bedeviled with this menace. We have a lot of graduates that have nothing to do. A lot of talented individuals and youth that you know are talented, but uh, they don't have enough you know support in terms of harnessing that talent. The enforcement aspect of NAVDAC is what I think should be vibrating. Uh, Where you have a law and you have a prohibition, but you cannot enforce it, that calls for another retreat. The issue of kidnapping, Boko Haram, armed robbery, and all devices that has been perpetuated by the youth is linked to this. And that is why we come together to see how we can salvage the situation. The conference seeks how to apply strategies to destroy the criminal network on drug distribution. The United Nations says one out of ten drugs on sales in developing communities are fake. In 2018 alone, Nigeria seized and destroyed fake drugs worth over $800 million. The average age of those using drugs in Africa is between 20 and 29, a cadre which forms the hope of Africa's future. The situation is, however, redeemable if there's synergy between drug control agencies across the continent. From Lagos, Nigeria, I'm Collins Nosa Atohengwe for Channel Africa News. Many parts of the world, naturally rich, especially Africa, are poor and parts not well off in minerals enjoy the highest standards of living. Channel Africa brings you a brand new show dedicated to revitalize the motherland with her music and wisdom. Building Africa with Love, Fridays 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and all Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Central African Time. Nguvu kwa watu, upendo ni nguvu. From Nairobi comes a report that cattle rustling, a traditional practice over the past 70 years, has now been commercialized by a criminal networks in East Africa and the Horn of Africa regions. James Shimanyula reports. Delegates attending a seminar in the Kenyan capital Nairobi have been told that cattle rustling, once a traditional practice among nomadic communities, has now become commercialized by criminal networks 
that span communal and international borders and involve a wide range of perpetrators. The one-day seminar has been hosted by INACT, the European Union-funded organization and implemented by the Addis Ababa Institute for Security Studies and Interpol in affiliation with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. This is how Duncan Omondi Gumba, ETAC's regional coordinator for Eastern Africa, described the issue of cattle rustling. It is the first time that uh, the issue of cattle rustling is being discussed as a transnational organized crime issue. It has been discussed by the countries. There's a protocol for the region that has been uh, signed, but only one country has ratified it, which is Uganda. We are looking at this as a possible opportunity for the countries to renew those talks and to go towards ratification. Gumba says time has come for stern action to be taken against the cattle rustlers. It has reached a point where it needs to be taken care of because of the problem of transnational organized crime. What is happening is that more and more arms are, get, are getting uh, trafficked into the, into the region. Given the fact that this issue is compounded with climate change, you are having farmers who are already, not, not really farmers, but pastoralists, who are already marginalized, who are already struggling with the effects of climate change. And uh, then when you add the issue of cattle rustling that is taking away their cattle, then you are taking away their livelihood, which is already threatened by climate change. So that's why there is need uh, for action now. Also attending the Nairobi seminar, is Dr. Andrews Atta Asamo, senior researcher at the Addis Ababa-based Institute for Security Studies. Asamoa sheds light on challenges that face East Africa and the Horn of Africa regions as far as cattle rustling is concerned. The challenge we have most of the time is that we respond to threats in a very te- um, templated way. So what that means is that you, you know it as it was 20 years ago, and so you are fashioning responses according to what you knew, without taking into consideration the fact that these threats are very dynamic and they reflect the situation on the ground. If you look at the nature of the reports that we are launching, what is happening is that we are looking at it more from an organized crime dimension. So it's not just about what happens in the communities, but how different influences are tapping into what exists on the ground. When I asked Dr. Asamoa to amplify the issue of challenge, he had this to say. I think the biggest challenge, but from the angle of, of response to cattle wrestling, is really about our inability to unlock the, the social dimension of this. Because many of those who do that, it's not just about the criminal aspect of it. They look at it from a cultural perspective. They see it as something they've done for risk-talking. Sometimes it's not just the mentality of the criminality, but the mentality and interpretation that it may be risk-talking, and so it's something that is seasonal and cyclical. Our inability to deal with that is making it a bit more difficult in addressing the crisis. That was Dr. Andrews Atta Asamoa, Senior Research Fellow at the Addis Ababa-based Institute for Security Studies. At this juncture, it may be imperative to bring to light the fact that a lucrative illicit trade has been growing in East Africa and the Horn of Africa regions at the expense of under-resourced pastoralists who lose their livestock to bandits connected to powerful individuals and transnational groups. This, according to researchers, is compounded by a low recovery rate as most of the livestock ends up in slaughterhouses and markets far away from where they were stolen. Also worth mentioning is the fact that illegal circulation of small arms and light weapons has increased across Africa due to endemic armed conflicts, making the once customary practice of cattle wrestling more violent and more harmful as livestock bandits are increasingly reported to be well-armed and carrying sophisticated weapons. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. 
The World Health Organization says it's providing support to to Algerian health authorities after the country's confirmed its first case of COVID-19. This brings to two of the number of cases of the rapidly spreading virus on the African continent following Egypt's first recorded case. More from Dr. Marshall Yawo, Program Manager for Emergency Responses at the World Health Organization's Region Office for Africa. So far, information uh, received uh, from uh, Algeria is that uh, it's a traveler that came from Italia and uh, traveled uh, countryside and uh, became sick there and went for medical uh, assistance. And uh, it's where the medical doctor kind of raised the alert and uh, the sample was collected and based on the fact that he was traveling from uh, Italia, one of the affected area, and he was test positive. Does the case pose any threat, doctor, to neighboring countries at this stage? So far, at least it's, uh, we stick on this one case. What will tell us if um, we have um, a higher risk uh, for the neighboring countries is to see, to have a comprehensive report on uh, where the patient went since uh, he became uh, sick and um, how many contacts have been retrieved and uh, so far we don't have uh, this kind of information from the Algerian authority yet. Is Algeria considered one of the African countries at the highest importation risk from China? It is. Algeria was part of the priority threatened countries that uh, we assessed, so it was uh, part of it. Now, would Algeria be able to successfully tackle more cases of the virus should they be reported? They were in the process. The report that we have uh, from authorities was that uh, in the different response areas, like uh, the detection, isolation and treatment, they have some capacity. They have uh, one of the past uh, network laboratories that they can confirm and they have experts on the ground. Now, the support that uh, we are providing is uh, to help them to really maybe scale up the, what they have uh, already on the ground. If not, some work has been done and uh, it needs to be strengthened for an effective control. Is why we are trying to see how to support them with the uh, aspect that we are planning to deploy. Are you generally satisfied with the kind of efforts many African countries are making to ramp up their preparedness activities? I will say that there is progress made in different areas. If we take like laboratory, we had two weeks ago about two labs that can confirm in Africa. Now we have 29. So these are efforts made collectively by partners, including WHO, and also by member states. We have all the priority countries that have a screening process, and they have also increased alert within the surveillance system. So in these areas, progress has been made. Where the more effort should be made is treatment capacity. They have some, but it's, uh, we have to anticipate. If we start having a big number of cases, we need to have this capacity to manage. Also, experience from China is showing that we can have severe cases that require intensive care units. And this capacity is uh, limited. And so far, in terms of preparedness, we cannot see a potential increase in this capacity. So uh, we are working with partners. We are planning even next week, early next week, a meeting with different partners to see how best we can support countries to anticipate, to preposition, to increase such capacity should there be a big number of cases in a given country. And just finally there, how close are we to a COVID-19 pandemic from your analysis as the World Health Organization? From our analysis, the pandemic is around a few criteria. Of course, human-to-human transmission with potential death, as well as many regions being affected. So we almost have this criteria, but what we are actually looking at is there any sustained transmission within the communities that are triggering a huge number that may require some of what we call the mitigation measures, like closing school, like doing things. We are not there yet at this level. But of course, all the countries should work hard in terms of preparing so that we can have early detection 
to avoid a bigger community transmission that could uh, uh, lead to a potential pandemic. That's Dr. Michael Yao, Program Manager for the Emergency Report re- Response at the World Health Organization's Regional Office for Africa, talking to Elizabeth Litega. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has suspended visas for visits to Islam's holiest sites for the Umrah pilgrimage and an unprecedented move triggered by coronavirus fears that raises questions over the annual Hajj. The kingdom, which hosts a million of pilgrims every year in the sites of Mecca and Medina, also suspended visas for tourists from countries with reported infections as fears for a pandemic deepen. It is uh, 30 minutes after 5 and this is Africa Digest. For now, let us take to the headlines with Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Teddy. Good afternoon. Making headlines. Guinea's President Alpha Conde has reportedly refused to meet a delegation of West African leaders as the country heads towards a referendum that could allow him to run for a third term. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has called for the temporary closure of all public schools from next Monday until the end of March to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. And finally, an international charity says the invasion of locusts in East Africa is likely to cause the region's worst humanitarian crisis in recent times. For Channel Africa... I'm Jolani Tulo. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Many parts of the world, naturally rich, especially Africa, are poor and parts not well off in minerals enjoy the highest standards of living. Channel Africa brings you a brand new show dedicated to revitalize the motherland with her music and wisdom. Building Africa with Love, Fridays 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and all Sundays from 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Central African Time. German NGO Sign of a Hope says a key South Sudan oil export pipeline suffered at least two massive spills last year. The organization says uh, it's been investigating the impact of oil population in the country using satellite images to detect two major oil spills in 2019. It has urged the government to to shut down before it it causes more environmental damage. South Sudan has been wrecked by by conflict since 2013 due to the political rivalry among the ruling elite and fighting devastated the oil sector. Its main earner, more from Terry Swartzberg, a campaigner at the Sign of Hope. Sign of Hope has been uncovering environmental scandals, oil spills in South Sudan since 2007. We've built up a huge network of people on the ground. We have very brave and courageous agents who go to where we suspect oil spills, oil pipeline ruptures may have occurred. And the reason we send them there is because we have built up a network of satellite images. In other words, we use satellite images to detect what we think are oil spills, and then we go send our people there to confirm them and take pictures of them. This is very new and revolutionary. So this time around, how much of an environmental damage did you uncover? We uncovered two huge oil spills of a total area, as you can see in our press release, of about um, 35,000 square meters something like that. It's a huge oil spill. And you have to realize, since these two oil spills and oil pipeline ruptures took place so close to each other, that means this this pipeline is totally dilapidated, well, it could break down any time. It is a time bomb that keeps on exploding. So what is your appeal then to the government? First of all, did you make the government aware and what is your appeal to them? The government has been appealing to the government since 2007. The government itself knows that it has a huge problem. They admitted that the uh, pipeline is, is dilapidated. They've committed themselves to doing an entire environmental audit of all of South Sudan, specifically the oil fields and specifically the pipeline. And they've committed themselves to trying to help the 600,000 people whose health has been destroyed by oil leaks and oil spills. They've all agreed to this. We're hoping that they're going to live up to their promises now. And do we know what actually caused this spill? Could the pipeline themselves be the issue here? The, the, the pipelines themselves were shut down twice. That's not good for a pipeline to be shut down. 
because of the civil war that's been raging in South Sudan. You have to realize South Sudan has 12 million people. It's been in basically in the civil war since its very founding in 2011. Of the 12,000 people, 400,000 have been killed. Over half the people are going hungry. Over 40% are refugees and all because of oil. And what happens with the pipelines when they get shut down is that water starts accumulating in them. And water, of course, corrodes pipelines. It rusts them. And this means that the pipeline is not in the position to stand any sort of pressure. You need obviously need a certain kind of pressure to push the oil through the pipeline. And as we've seen, as we've demonstrated, it's, the pipeline's just not up to it. It's going to rupture. It's going to spill again. What sort of environmental impact does this oil spill have then for the country? What happens when oil spills and oil waste spill is that horrible things like lead get in the ground. And lead gets in the water that people consume. People consume by they drink it, they wash themselves, they water the crops with it, they feed their animals. This And South Sudan has the highest levels of lead poisoning among its population of any country in the world that does not have a lead mine in it right next to it. And what this means is a generation or two or three generations of South Sudanese are condemned to horrible, painful lives and very painful deaths. That's what we're talking about here. It's one of the world's largest environmental scandals. And that was Terry Schwarzberg, a campaigner at the German non-governmental organization Sign of Hope on, on the line talking to Tlasa Masango. Despite the progressive policy commitments that Southern Africa government have made to offer young people universal access to sexual health and reproductive rights information and services, there is a slow progress in meeting young people's SRHR. For example, the unmet need for family planning is above 60% in South Africa, Swaziland and Lesotho. In response, a unique collation of SRHR organizations and faith organizations have developed a joint campaign to promote young people's access to SRHR services in eight countries in the region. The campaign doubted because we can was we can was launched in Cape Town this morning and joining us on the line to tell us more is Patricia Delora. She is the founder and chief executive officer of the nonprofit organization Partners in Sexual Health. I think the, 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 the biggest challenge in terms of implementing these things is, is it's not as if government do not give commitment because usually when we they, they develop these policies and treaties, um, the biggest challenge is it's not filtering down. It's not filtering down to our young people, which means our young people sometimes do not have access. And one of the biggest things that our young people are crying for is for youth-friendly services and just for them, their voices to be heard and understand what their needs are. I think that is one of our biggest challenges in terms mm. of implementing these policies that we can't have within mm-hmm. CEDEC in terms of SRHR. Now, talk to us about uh, the campaign, Because We Can, and uh, the objectives uh, of this particular campaign. So our objectives of our Because We Can campaign is in sh- to ensure that we actually try to educate and create leadership amongst our young people so that they, we can ensure that we actually filter these policies down to implementation phase. So we are dealing with the Maputo Plan of um, Action. We One of the policies is the ESSA commitment, and the ESSA commitment clearly talks about comprehensive sexual education and access to SRHR services. So we're trying to create platforms where we're ensuring that these policies become reality and that actually that our young people's lives will be better based on these type of policies. Let's talk a bit about the collaborations that you've made with this uh, campaign, Patricia. Um, one of the major ones, of course, is with faith-based uh, community. And this is often such a, a controversial uh, subject to discuss, especially with the faith-based community. Um, it's often seen as controversial in society. What has this uh, collaboration been like? And what's the strategy around um, collaborating with faith-based communities? in the inception of our campaign um, because we're dealing, as you say, rightfully say, we are partnering with Faith to Action which is a, a faith network um, with um, different memberships and one of the key things that we started doing when we deal with uh, faith leaders was to ensure that we actually respect the views of the faith leaders and when we put a platform where we discuss things openly but within the space of, of, of the, the, the faith sector. So, um, and I have to admit it, um, when we did it starting last year, we've got such a, such a stage whereby we invited the young people in. So the faith leaders actually engage with the young leaders. And one of the key things that come up with, um, in, within our dealing with the faith leaders is the faith leaders actually saying, we need to give them education. 
We want them to be on board, but one of the key things that they're lacking is the knowledge in terms of CSE and SRHR. So this is one of the key things that we're moving towards now to actually ensure that we educate our faith leaders in terms of CSE and SRHR. And also um, what we've come up with the faith leaders is they've actually developed us policy briefs. Policy briefs in terms of CSE, gender-based violence, access to SRHR to young people, but mm. with the link through the faith community, mm. which is mm. excellent. Now, let's talk a bit about uh, your rollout and how it's it's doing um, in South Africa. Uh, South Africa, in terms of the comprehensive sexuality in schools, what's that looking like? And a CSE is not exactly understood by the public. I think, yeah, we've, 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 that's one of the key things and, and what we've actually discussed with, with um, some of our young activists that is here. And, and in terms of our public, that we need to ensure that we actually educate our public in terms of what is comprehensive sexual education. Because currently what we are experiencing is that we're getting a back, uh, a backslash almost of when people think that we want to teach our young children within the schools about sex or how to have sex which is absolutely not true. What we try to do with the comprehensive sexuality in schools is to inform our young people. If you just look at the, the rate of our teenage pregnancy, the rate of how our young people are getting infected, people in the community will need to understand that it's important that we start to educate our young people. And this is not a cry from the schools. This is not a cry from the teachers. This is not a cry from government. This is a cry from our young people. And that's why I was saying earlier on, it is important that young people's voices want to be heard. And that's the campaign is actually making sure that their voices are amplified. So in terms of the education in schools, specifically with South Africa, and the current situation whereby there is a lot of misinformation circling around um, through social media and different platforms, creating a sense to our larger public that CSE is an ugly thing and or we are misinforming or we are, mis- we are trying to teach our children how to have sex, which mm. is absolutely not the truth, not at all. And that's Patricia Delora, Chief Executive Officer for Partners on Sexual Health, talking to Zikona Miso. It's World NGO Day today, an annual marking point for non-profit organizations to celebrate their achievements, as well as allowing small, grassroots organizations to gain ro- more recognition. Since 1964, the Mills on Wheels Community Services South Africa has been at the forefront addressing food insecurity in South Africa. The non-governmental organization says it has been aligning itself with two of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals of No Poverty and Zero Hunger. It has operates via more than 7,000 services points throughout South Africa. More from Yonela Takawira, the Training and Development Manager at Mills on Wheels. Mills on Wheels was established in 1964. The initial project for Mills on Wheels was just to feed the underprivileged. With time, it has evolved to actually building sustainable communities through agricultural projects and also through skills projects where we actually transfer skills to the underprivileged because you will understand that most of the people when they're in a disadvantaged situation, their minds cannot think further than that. So what Mills and Mills is then doing is giving back the dignity, human dignity that we all deserve, that we are able to do everything that we put our minds to and we can achieve a lot of things. We've got about 10 beneficiaries in the orange farm that are starting a garden. They are doing it. We have a farmer that is actually transferring the skills to them to make sure that they can now produce their own food. What impact does NGO work have in supporting youth career development? I know you touched a bit on the issue, but please elaborate. Basically, we are at a stage in our country where we cannot sit back and expect everything from the government. NGOs play a vital role to actually collaborate with the government, to actually say that we'll move from where we are and reach out to our youth that is not employed, to give them the skills, to actually give them also the hope that, like I've said, you can actually do anything that you put your mind to it. Through our agricultural initiatives, we give the knowledge and we give the practical skill and we help them develop their own gardens where they can benefit by consuming 
and also by commercializing. That in its own is now building entrepreneurs. How important is it to inspire unemployed people to get involved in NGO work? It's very important. It's also equally challenging because remember, if you are in a certain situation where you are disadvantaged, you sit back and you wait to receive handouts. So the work of NGOs to try and get our disadvantaged beneficiaries from that is mindset work. So through our training that we actually do, we don't just get into the subject, you know, but also we try and to make sure that we literally just let them know that you are able to the mindset, change the mindset. Let them believe that you are in a situation that you are in, but it will not forever be like that. That's Yanela Takawira, the training and development manager at Meals on Wheels, talking to Elizabeth Ledega. The time is 45 minutes after 5 Central African time. This is Africa Digest. But for now, let us take to business news with Sile Zuma. Thank you, Terry. Good evening. An international charity says the invasion of locusts in East Africa is likely to cause the region's worst humanitarian crisis in recent times. Mercy Corps says a second invasion is due in the next few weeks. The BBC's Africa editor Mary Harper reports. Mercy Corps said the recent arrival of locusts in South Sudan is especially worrying, as more than half the population already relies on humanitarian aid. The insects are ravaging crops and pastures in parts of East Africa, where tensions over grazing land are already high. Experts say the numbers of the fast-breeding creatures could grow by 500 times before June, when dry weather sets in, which helps curb their spread. The United Nations Food Agency says this is the worst locust invasion in East Africa in 25 years. More automakers are selling cars online in China as worried consumers stay away from showrooms to stop the spread of the coronavirus. Chinese car maker Gili is the latest to launch a new online service to try to boost sales in the country. It joins the likes of Tesla, BMW and Mercedes-Benz who are now actively marketing cars over the internet. The online trend comes amid a downturn in car sales in China which plummeted 92% in the first half of February. Gili, which owns a black cab maker, the London Electric Vehicle Company, and Volvo says that customers can now order and customize their cars on its website. Meanwhile, Microsoft is the latest major company to warn of a disruption as China grapples with the coronavirus outbreak. The tech giant says that because its Chinese suppliers are shut down, manufacturing operations have been affected. The company warns this delay could hit sales of its personal computing business, including Surface tablets. Microsoft says factories are reopening across China, but this is happening slower than expected. The Microsoft announcement highlights a growing problem for tech firms that rely on a complex network of suppliers in China for real-time deliveries of crucial parts. The British government has published its negotiating mandate for trade talks with the European Union, undermining its determination to exercise full economic and political independence. The document rejects the EU proposal for future close alignment and warns that the UK could walk away from negotiations if there is no broad outline by June. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. Both sides say they want a free trade agreement with no tariffs or quotas, but the EU wants commitments on, for example, industrial subsidies and environmental regulation that the government is unwilling to make. So the talks are likely to be tough, and the government's position is that if it considers there has not been sufficient progress by June, it's prepared to abandon them. It would instead focus on preparations for a future relationship known as World Trade Organization terms, which would involve tariffs and other barriers. 
President Africa requires more than 2.5 trillion US dollars in order to achieve the sustainable development goals in accordance with the African Union's Agenda 2063. This was revealed at the 6th Africa Regional Forum on Sustainable Development taking place in Victoria Falls, Zimbabwe. As the conference was slowly coming to an end, the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa made a plea for African leaders to be accountable. Simon Muchemwa reports. While Africa requires at least 2.5 trillion US dollars in order to implement the Sustainable Development Goals SDGs by 2030, the continent is fast losing resources worth billions of dollars every year. Corruption is rife in Africa such that at least 100 billion US dollars is lost each year through corruption, while the continent is also losing nearly 50 billion US dollars each year. For your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 363.10 Nigerian Nara, 10.92 Botswana Bula, at 99.98 Kenyan Shilling, and at 14.66 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 4.40 Brazilian Rule, 65.37 Russian Ruble, 71.65 Indian Rupee, 7.02 Chinese Yuan, and at 15.22 South African Rand. The US dollar is also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 91. One cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,649 and platinum at $919 per ounce. The price of brand crude oil is $52.75 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusi Lezuma. You're still tuned in to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective with myself, Teddy Sibia. But for now, let us take to the sports news with uh, Neto Chimani. With the latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour, I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. From the sports desk, a very good evening. Starting off with football news. With the dust yet to settle over the wrongful killing of a former Remo Stars vice-captain, Diamiyu Kazim, allegedly by operatives of the special anti-robbery squad in Sagamo on February the 22nd, the president of the Nigeria Football Federation, NFF Amaju Pinik, has paid his condolences to the parents of the deceased footballer. Channel Africa's Tony Obani reports from Lagos. Coming a day after Governor of Ogun State, Prince Dakwa, Dakwa Biodu visited the same residence to commit straight to the grieving parents of the player. The NFL President Pinnick was yesterday at Late Cousins' parents' residence where he reiterated the need for the perpetrators of the heinous crime to be brought to face the full wrath of the law. Accompanied by the Chairman of Ogun State Football Association and Executive Board Member of NFF, Ganiu Majekodomi and President of Remo Star Sports Club, Honorable Kunle Shoname, Pinnick said Kazim's death was unfortunate and painful experience which must not be allowed to go without consequences for those responsible for such a dastardly and reprehensible act. On to rugby news. Super rugby officials scrambled to deal with the coronavirus outbreak on Thursday, saying they were working to relocate a match in Japan and announcing sanitization stations and temperature checks for all teams. The Southern Hemisphere competition, featuring teams from Australia, Argentina, Japan, New Zealand and South Africa, has so far not had to cancel any matches due to the deadly COVID-19. But Sansa said it was in advanced discussions about the Sunwolves game against the Brumbies on March the 6th in Osaka after the Japanese government recommended cancelling, postponing or scaling back sports events over the next fortnight. So far, there have been no identified cases of any players, management, match officials or family members with symptoms, including the Sun Wolves, who are currently in New Zealand for Saturday's match against the Hurricanes. In golf news, Italian golfers Eduardo Molinari 
and Lorenzo Gagli have been given the all-clear to compete in Thursday's Oman Open after being placed in quarantine in Muscat over coronavirus fears. Gagli had suffered flu-like symptoms, and S. Molinari, the older brother of former Open winner Francesco, was his roommate. Both were forced to withdraw from the tournament and placed in isolation as a precautionary measure on Wednesday. The Omani Ministry of Health reported that Gagli's test results were negative, the European tour said in a statement on Thursday. Due to these exceptional circumstances, both Lorenzo and Eduardo will now be reinstated into the Oman Open as an addition to the field. The 39-year-old Molinari comes from Turin in the north of Italy, while the 34-year-old Gagli hails from Florence in Tuscany, where there have also been cases. On to cricket news. Beth Mooney and Alisa Healy shown as Australia thrashed Bangladesh by 86 runs in their women's T20 World Cup group match in Canberra. Mooney struck an unbeaten 81 and Healy an astonishing 83 as the two shared a brutal 151-run opening partnership. Healy was the only batter to fail for Australia, but Ashley Gardner's unbeaten 22 from nine balls powered the defending champions to 189 for one at Manuka Oval. Bangladesh could only reach 103 for nine from their attritional 20 overs, with Seema Megan Scott taking three for 21. Australia are close to qualifying for the knockout stages thanks to their emphatic margin of victory in Canberra and India's win over New Zealand earlier on Thursday. And finally in tennis news. World number two Rafael Nadal stepped up his bid for a third ATP Mexico Open title with an impressive display of serving and shot making to beat Serbian youngster Miomir Kekmanovic on Wednesday. The Spaniard hit 20 winners as he kept his hopes alive of regaining the top ranking with a 6-2-7-5 victory over the 20-year-old Kekmanovic to reach the quarterfinals at the Acapulco Hardcourt tournament. Stay tuned to Channel Africa for programming news and sport from an African perspective. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto N-E-T-O Chemaani. This is Africa Digest. Just a quick recap on our top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Cameroon's government forces and armed ethnic Fulani fighters kill at least 21 civilians in Guba village, including 13 children. The International Monetary Fund IMF says Zimbabwe may plunge into a humanitarian crisis due to missed economic targets. And the World Health Organization says it's providing support to Algerian health authorities after the country's confirmed its first case of COVID-19. That wraps up Africa Digest this hour from myself, Teddy Sibia, producer Lebo Mswewu, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. You can also send us an email to info at, at channelafrica.za or follow us on Twitter at channelafrica1. On Facebook, you'll find us at Channel Africa or you can send us a WhatsApp message to plus two seven seven six three double zero double three two seven. Channel Africa from an African perspective. And we play out at this hour today with the song titled Chigijela by Tandi Mazwai.